Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me here on the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel and today I'm joined on the show by Jane Harrison. Now, here on, the po- here on the Final Draft podcast, we explore books, writing, and literary culture. Each week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, Australia. Now, at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, whether it be a debut author or a classic who's written so many of those books that you love. Each of these conversations is a chance to look at the issues that drives that author's storytelling, a way to help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands, acknowledging these are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Now, today on the show, I am joined by Jane Harrison. Jane is a playwright and an author descended from the Murrawari people. We have spoken on the show before. If you go back in the archives, you will find some great conversations with Jane. And today, we are bringing you her new book. It is called The Visitors. It emerged out of a stage play that she wrote. It is also being uh, created as an opera. And this book is an incredible look, a rethink at uh, that day in 1788 when the, this is a history that we are taught but also not taught. I think for Australian listeners, you will know where I'm going with this. And if you're listening from further afield, this is about something that I guess is a foundational myth of what we, the land we call Australia. And Jane reimagines it from the perspective of the people that were there. I'm so excited to be bringing you the visitors. So join me as we discuss Jane Harrison's The Visitors. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Jane. Terrific to be talking again. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Yes, this must be about our third or fourth. It definitely is. I was thinking about that. We spoke many years ago about... Actually, I think it must have been in this... I've been doing this for 10 years now. And Becoming Kiralee Lewis, that's got to be about eight or nine years ago. Yes, probably. Yeah. So, it's terrific. Then The Visitors, oh my goodness, what a, a, a triumphant book. I, it's so thought-provoking. I'm so excited oh, to be talking about it. Fantastic. Thank you. Appreciate um, that. But shall we then? Shall we just jump in? Yes. Marvellous. Okay. My name is Andrew Popel, and I am welcoming to the show Jane Harrison. Jane is a playwright and author descended from the Murrawari people. She's the author of the internationally acclaimed play Stolen, and today I'm going to be introducing you to the novelisation of her most recent play. It is called The Visitors. It is a triumph. It is amazing. And Jane, I'm so happy to be welcoming you back to the show. Thank you, Andrew. I'm glad to be back. This book is a wealth of ideas. It is let me let me tell the listener just a little bit about it. The visitors takes us to Gadigal Land in January of 1788. And on this sweltering day, a strange sight appears in the harbour and immediately spurs the locals into action. Messages are sent to the nations of the coastal and river regions, calling seven men, elders in their clans, to congregate and decide what must be done now that the visitors have returned. I mean, I I think immediately this is going to pique the interest of any reader, Jane. We have this group of elders, these men, coming together. They're from all of these nations, and they want to discuss what their course of action should be. 
Many of the men want to repel the visitors, but one man, Walter, is more circumspect. And you have you have Walter ask the group, and this really struck me. He says, I am wondering, how will we remember this day? It's an yes. incredible moment. And I wondered, was this a guiding principle in your writing of the visitors? <laughs> well, yes, it is centred around the 26th of January. Um, so that's a significant date in our calendars. And we do remember that day um, in many different forms. But um, there's still, you know, obviously controversy over that particular day as far as the First Nations community is concerned. It doesn't feel like a celebratory day. And so I just wanted to flag that in the book. I think a lot of Australians' research has shown don't really understand the events of January 26, 1788, and they often think it's when Cook arrived or something to do with First World War, and they don't really know the significance and what it means to First Nations people. So, yeah, I did want to explore that. Yeah, as I... As I started reading The Visitors, perhaps even before I started reading, when this when this book arrived and I opened it up and I had a look at it and I thought, what an incredible concept. But I reflected and realised that while I, I know that Arthur Phillips Landing happened, I don't know much else. Like, I don't remember being taught in school about those early days. And I certainly don't remember anyone in the story who wasn't on the ships. And even there, it's like kind of this vaguely formed idea of, convicts in my young mind. This is something of a foundational myth of the so-called colony, but I wondered, is this a story that is so often assumed but never truly told or understood? Yes. Well, I I think this is the first time this um, the events of this day have been explored from the First Nations point of view, and that was really important for me. And also, it's a day really of relative innocence. They have the events of Cook's uh, visit 18 years before, and someone was shot during that visit, and trees were felled and all sorts of things happened. Spears were stolen, uh, permanently borrowed, as I call it in the book. Um, and so they have those experiences and they are also at the same time observing what's happening on the boats and making their, um, you know, they've got their assumptions, they've got their biases. It's about them discussing um, what their response should be to these uh, increasing number of boats that are arriving. First there's one and then there's three and then there's, you know, eventually there's 11 in the harbour. Mm. And they need to, they're under time pressure to make a decision on how to respond. Where did this story start for you? And that, sorry, that feels like a very large question. And I was hoping more for the, the, the narrower interpretation. Of course, this story began hundreds of years ago. But what spurred you to put it on the page first as, as theatre and now as a novel? Yeah. So that's, again, going back quite a long time. I, I'm a writer who takes a long time to develop their ideas. So I found notes in my garage when I moved house that went back very many years, probably to not long after the intervention, which I think happened in 2007. And the idea that Aboriginal men in particular were being problematised by that intervention with signs going up in communities saying, you know, no pornography, no this, no that. And I felt like, well, that could be just as relevant in any community, whether it's mm. the North Shore or Turak in Melbourne, you could have those signs up. You know, why target 
Aboriginal men in particular. And I had a friend who said, now when I walk down the street, people will think I'm a pedophile just because he was Aboriginal. And so I wanted to write something that kind of showed the value of Aboriginal men that I knew who are kind, clever, uh, funny, um, interested in the world, uh, you know, they are the philosophers, the scientists, the the engineers. And, yeah, I at the same time I saw the play 12 Angry Men and that influenced me in terms of the, the plot of The Visitors. Uh, and I saw kind of a meshing of those two ideas uh, as being something that I thought was really interesting to explore. And as I said, I don't think... The events of 1788 have been really explored from the First Nations point of view before. Mm. I'm interested in the meeting. Uh, the meeting, as you depicted, it would have been private. In you know, at the contemporary time, there would have only been certain members of the society who were allowed admission, um, or even to know what was discussed. How did you go about imagining the scene? Yeah, that was that was fun. That was really fun. I uh, had my seven characters, and so I imagined them. I actually cast it in my mind with actors that I knew, and then I was able to write around those particular actors. And so that really helped me flesh them out as three dimensional people. And I wanted them to all be, you know, quite diverse. I mean, it is unusual in a book to have seven protagonists, really. So that was a point of difference as well. But I kind of think it goes to um, the idea of community and writing about a community rather than just an individual. And so, yeah, I, I brought them together and they all have their different biases and opinions. And people have often said the story is very much like a land council meeting or any other meeting that goes on in the Aboriginal community where there's, you know, <laughs> a bit of toing and froing and sometimes it gets heated. Um, um, but, you know, I wanted them to come to a unanimous decision about how they were going to approach this because I think that's very much in the protocols of Aboriginal people, that they sit down and listen and talk um, until they've reached consensus. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I feel like anyone who's been in a meeting or a, even, a, you know, a slightly, a slightly bureaucratic meeting would have, like I'm, I'm sort of imagining, I don't know if it would be Gordon. I'm thinking it might be more, um, well, they'd be saying it to Gary, maybe Nathaniel saying this could have been an email, bro. Um, <laughs> I'm intrigued by the, the actors, the way you'd cast this in your mind. And I'm uh, maybe it's not a question for the interview proper, but I'd love to get back to that. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are very few female characters throughout the novel. What were your thoughts on that as you were developing the story? Again, I really wanted to write something about Aboriginal men because mm. I feel like they've been kind of left out of recent um, narratives and, you know, perhaps don't have as much agency in the modern world. Um, you know, there are obviously some, you know, key Aboriginal figure, figures out in the community and Aboriginal male leaders as well. But I think, um, you know, I worked at Aboriginal Affairs at the time that I was writing this as well, and um, the, the research showed that um, a lot of Aboriginal women were doing better in terms of, um, outcomes. And so I really wanted to write something that gave Aboriginal men agency. 
And so, yeah, I didn't write so much about the women, a little bit more obviously in the book than the play. Um, but in the play, actually, uh, two of the roles are played by women. So we've, uh, you know, mixed it up a little bit. I'm and looking forward. We, to- we've promised that we'll we'll give all the details at the end, but it is worth nodding to the fact that the visitors is going to be uh, produced by Sydney Theatre Company uh, in less than a month's time. So we'll definitely get back to that. That's that's exciting. Sydney Theatre Company and Mugulan Theatre. And Mugulan Theatre. Sorry, I caught it on the Sydney Theatre Company website. Yes. In the um, well, obviously this will be depicted in the in the state on the stage but in the book also we have the elders wearing a mix of garb they have names that while I don't hear them very often these days they also don't feel like they're Gadigal or Bidigal or any of the other groups represented can you tell me a little about your interpretive and aesthetic qualities that you bring to the story Right. Okay. There's a couple of big words for me. <laughs> um, in terms of the naming of the characters, partly it was a couple of things. Partly I, as I said, I cast it with um, particular actors in mind when I was writing the play version and those names stuck, although the names in the play and the book are slightly different because some of them um, were a little bit confusing, too similar, and so they are different. Uh and I was, uh, I didn't give them First Nations names, traditional names, because I sort of wanted, and the, the same reason for the clothing, that they're wearing modern clothing, I didn't want them to be othered and appear like the noble savage if they'd been naked or had traditional names. It might have removed um, them from the reader's kind of um, familiarity with those characters, but they're slightly old-fashioned names um, in keeping with 1788. Uh, Yes, so names you don't hear so much these days. Was it important? I I was thinking about also the interpretive aspect of the the way you garb them. I'm thinking about um, Walter very much sort of he is he is casual but and and cool befitting his personality uh, we've got Joseph who is sort of respected but also very stylish but then also the way they bring that into the conversation um, some of the idiom that they use allows us to feel their conversation uh, in our own conversations um, was that important that we be able to kind of transpose our thinking as well? Yes, I think so. Again, I kind of wanted to um, have it feel familiar to a reader um, so that they could recognise these people as individuals but also as kind of archetypes in our society really. You know, I've got the philosopher, I've got the tradie, I've got the engineer, I've got the bureaucrat uh, and their language is quite modern. It's Again, I didn't... And make it. Um, I didn't try to replicate the kind of language that they would be speaking in 1788. It is a contemporary novel, even though it's set in 1788. I really wanted to, you know, um, mix mess with people's heads in terms of their depiction as traditional Aboriginal men. Mm. You just talked there a little bit about each of the men having their own specialty. They are. They are representing their people for a reason. They've achieved certain status and certain, I guess, we, I, you know, if we put a contemporary spin on it, certain qualifications. Um, 
through these areas of expertise, you bring some really terrific and often hilarious insights into the story. Like Mogo 2.0 was was definitely a fave. <laughs> um, Walter Walter unveils to the group. He is he is uncertain about the course of action, and he unveils a, a, an axe that he discovered after the visitors first arrived uh, 18 years before. And this sets the men to thinking about technology. They debate the merits of technology. They debate whether it might give the visitors some inherent virtue that they have these things that they, they might be able to share. It's a really interesting discussion about whether, you know, the, this, this thing that you have, this ability to, sh- to craft something makes you a good person or a better person. What did you want to say about that balance between technology and humanity? Yes. Uh, Again, I'm kind of letting the reader make up their own minds about that. But, you know, there's often said about Aboriginal people that, you know, they didn't invent the wheel or whatever. But there was a lot of technology that happened in traditional societies. The things like boomerangs are really sophisticated in terms of the way they fly through the air. And David Unipon, who's on our $50 note, um, used some of that knowledge to um, do uh, uh, kind of, uh, 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 sorry, I've lost my, I've lost the word. Um, David Unipon, who's on our $50 note, used the um, technology involved in boomerangs to talk about helicopter blades. And, uh, you know, he was a scientist. Um, so, you know, I just wanted to point out the sophistication of their society, that they had laws and rules and ways of managing the world. And in fact, our world today could be better, you know, in terms of climate change and the like, if we followed some of those um, protocols and ways of interacting with our environment Uh, today. Things like um, the burning of um, coal burns of uh, forested areas and things like that to keep down um, uh, the undergrowth Mm. and uh, that they actually um, send less carbon into the atmosphere and uh, protect against global warming to a degree. So, yeah, I wanted to um, sort of just let the reader um, give them some insight into really some of the technologies that they had and, of course, they were interested in uh, the technologies of the First Fleet. And, in fact, the First Fleet bought hundreds of axes with them to use as ex- exchange items um, with the the Aboriginal population because they knew that they were sought after. It struck and me. And Benelong had a bit of a, a trade going in axes. Yeah. It struck me that as the group discuss the technology they well albert albert is the engineer and he he's he's very quick to start to work through some of the um some of the principles that he hasn't got yet but he's really he's really able to sort of figure out how they would have constructed boats that large where the group are confused and perhaps don't understand is when they see 
technology that is being applied perhaps ad hoc or haphazardly where they can't connect the technology with a purpose. And it really struck struck me, there was a conversation about, um, I think it was Joseph was offered alcohol and they're discussing what the possible purpose of this could be. Joseph speculates that it's a medicine, that um, a medicine that perhaps the group have grown, to- have, have developed a tolerance to, which is a fascinating insight because I think there's some really great research into um, the way alcohol has spread around the world and the way people do develop tolerance to it. But what really Mm. struck me about this and I was curious about was this idea of technology having to have some inherent purpose as opposed to just being used for the sake of it. Yes, they talk about also they're demonstrating, Walter's demonstrating the use of the axe Mm. and how it can fill a branch in just minutes and... uh, you know, I think Joseph points out the fact that, well, if you fill the branch, isn't it gone forever? And so it doesn't really always fit with their their ways of relating to the world. It's really, and it is. Um, Albert talks, or Albert, sorry, he wonders to himself in this conversation whether they should just innovate for the sake of it. Whether, mm. you know, being able to do something means that you should do something. Um, and that this mentality of just doing it because you can might have its own consequences. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that ecological and environmental consideration that you bring to the story. Yes, again, I think that uh, Aboriginal people demonstrated they lived in harmony. You know, they did change the landscape. Things like the fire stick farming did change the landscape over thousands of years, but they were able to... um, procure food and live healthy, uh, amazingly healthy lives without, um, you know, damaging the the environment. While in the book I was fascinated in my research to find out things like the fact that cassowaries were in the Sydney region. Wow. You know, I had no idea. And, of course, that pointing, just pointing that out tells us how much damage um, colonization has done to our environments and the loss of um, habitat for animals and uh, birds and the like. And so, yeah, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to sort of say the last line of the, the book what is something about paradise, living in paradise. And I'm not saying that we would have been better off without colonization because the reality is we would have been colonized. If it wasn't by the British, it would have been by the French or whoever uh, eventually. But, um, you know, do the losses outweigh the gains? And how do we achieve some kind of balance between the old ways of um, living with the environment and our modern sort of, you know, technology and, uh, you know, modern lifestyles? Mm, there's enormous to and fro um, in the debate. Was it was it ever tempting, as you wrote, to imagine a different history? <laughs> in terms of the fact that perhaps colonisation didn't happen, didn't occur, and they they went on in relative, um, you know, uh, isolation. Um, you you give us so many so many sort of opportunities, like. Perhaps, as you say before, like it was in, there was a certain inevitability given, uh, I guess, that kind of global impetus of those colonial powers, you know, 250 odd years ago, but having it happen differently, having it happen in a different way on different terms. Yes, um, I think there were lots of points 
within the narrative where things could have gone differently. You know, the fact that um, the colonisers used a little bit of force, you know, they they demonstrated their muskets and shot at a man when during Cook's visit and then they also did that... Um, you know, uh, with the first fleet that they, you know, used their muskets to kind of prove their superiority over the Aboriginal people who were, you know, very afraid of those muskets and the damage that they could do. And so, yeah, I think Philip did try to work with the um, Aboriginal people, um, but uh, but failed on a number of occasions. And in the the end of the book, I talk about some of the the events that had happened 18 months, up to 18 months after colonisation and just the mm. devastation that was wrought, particularly the smallpox mm. epidemic, which um, filled up to, some reports say, up to 70% of the ab- Aboriginal population around the, the bay. Yeah. And I guess we... The the ultimate the, the ending of this book. I don't. I never like to give away too much of an ending of a book, but sure. it is of of course overshadowed by the weight of history that every reader must feel. But the enormous joy in reading the book is in the characters. This is a character driven novel. It makes a whole lot of sense <laughs> given that on the stage you are going to have seven people carrying this performance. The ultimate decision of the group to welcome or repel the visitors is perhaps secondary to the way they go about that discussion. And I was really struck by both the compassion and the fury in the group's debate. And I wondered I wondered if we could finish the conversation with a little bit of a sense of that. And I wanted to hone in on the juxtaposition of Gordon and Walter. Um, one's, well, Walter's inherent sympathy towards and Gordon's lack thereof, the visitors, it seems to go against the tide of history. There's this, there are these real moments of, of frisson where you go, I, I don't want to agree with Gordon, but also he's kind of right. <laughs> he is absolutely right, and he's the least sympathetic of all the characters, mm-hmm. and yet ultimately he's, he's the one who's closest to the truth of what would eventuate. And so hopefully that makes uh, his actions all the more poignant uh, and, you know, uh, hopefully the reader will go away with a sense of um, the uh, the weight of his decision to do that. And, and again, I, I wanted to, you know, colonisation is something that happened to Aboriginal people without, we weren't consulted about that. We weren't, you know, it wasn't a conversation. Um, it just happened. And, uh, but it's, that's not a very empowering thing, position to be in. And I wanted my characters to have some agency. Mm-hmm. And so what decision would they have made if they had the choice, if they could be the real decision maker? makers would they repel these people or would they do what their protocols have always um told them to do uh, which is to do a welcome to country when visitors travel through and of course they have no idea that these people are going to stay that's why it's called the visitors you know visitors go visitors leave and so, you know, it's beyond them why they won't be back in their own home countries looking after country because they love their country so much. Mm. Was it difficult to craft both Gordon and Walter with these seemingly 
I guess, the counterintuitive <laughs> motives and personalities. Yeah, I mean uh, that's the that's the joy in writing. I'm writing characters that you know go on a have their own narrative arcs and uh, change through the circumstances of the meeting. And you know, there's a point where Walter actually questions his own point of view and says the stakes are high, and so he's you know somewhat. Um, He's somewhat afraid of perhaps um, that he's going to uh, convince the others to make a decision a particular way and that, that that might have consequences. And then, of course, Gordon at the end tells his story and about his experiences 18 years before and men realise his anger is really about the pain that he's been suffering. And so they kind of, um, you know, are far more empathetic towards him and understand his point of view. Mm. And we need to, you know, we need to see that in Gordon, that he's not just a one-dimensional character. It is it is a tremendous book, Jane, and I really appreciate the chance to talk about it. And I, I would have to thoroughly recommend it to everyone that they go out, because as I said, as I led with, this is not the history that perhaps you were never even told because, again, it feels like an assumption that is made that we are living the end result of and really examining it is so incredibly important. I'm speaking with Jane Harrison. We are discussing her novel, The Visitors, which grew from her play, The Visitors, which is coming up. It's going to be performed at the Drama Theatre, Sydney Opera House, from 11th of September till the 14th of October. You can check it out on the Sydney Theatre Company website. We will link up to that as well. Jane, you also mentioned that it is going to be going on down in Victoria. Um, Can you give us those details? As as an opera. As an opera, which feels incredible. Yeah. So the story is uh, in novel form, a play form, and an opera form all within three months of one another, which is a complete coincidence and so but you know really exciting for me and uh the opera will be lovely as well and then the play itself will tour um do mainly regional areas in australia next year incredible jane harrison's the visitors an incredible invitation to discover this story in so many different forms jane thank you so much for taking the time today thank you andrew it's been a pleasure Thanks so much for joining me today on the Final Draft podcast. Thank you also to Jane Harrison. I I was joined today by Jane Harrison. We were discussing her new book, The Visitors. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to get in touch with us here at Final Draft, you'll find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can, uh, you can, our handle is at Final Draft 2SER. You can also just email us finaldraft at 2SER.com. Love to hear from you. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe. If you are really enjoying the show, then like let your friends know. A great way to do that is just give us a rating, leave us a comment, uh, borrow your friend's phone and subscribe to our podcast. <laughs> I will be back next week. My name is Andrew Pope. I'm going to be back next week. I have more incredible Australian books to share with you here on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye for now. <laughs>